There is no massaging the data to fit your concept, but there is for other types of media. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. And I am Enrico Bertini. I am a professor at New York University in New York City, where I do research and teach data visualization. That's right. And on this podcast, together we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest or two uh, that we invite on the show. Exactly. But before we start, just a quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there's no ads. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or you can also send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash data stories. And I just want to say, if you can do that, especially during these hard times, that's totally fine. Just keep listening to the show. And um, if you want to write uh, maybe a message on Twitter talking about uh, data stories or maybe reviewing our show on iTunes, that would be really appreciated. Other than that, please don't feel obliged to, to do any donation. Right, right. So let's dive right in. Let's get started. So we have a special topic today and we decided to make it even a two episode feature, maybe even more episodes to come because actually there's been a huge blind spot. So Enrico and I, whenever <laughs> we review our Trello board with episode ideas, we realize sometimes, oh, we've done so many episodes, but we never talked to somebody from Field X or from, you know, uh, this and that area. And it's been like this really with For years. Um, small to medium data visualization agencies which is insane because some of the best data with work obviously comes from these types of companies and uh, we talked to a lot of practitioners and researchers and whatnot but but never really to people running data visualization studios huge blind spot happens but now we're catching up quick and so we're inviting <laughs> two uh, even guests today and and we record another episode with two more guests uh, and this will be the next one so hopefully we're back to a good ratio of, of <laughs> database agency folks <laughs> after all this and keep going and I'm personally super interested I've known the folks will talk for you for many many years in fact, I realized um, last year at ENCODE conference that a lot of these agencies have been around for 10 years or longer. And so it's really now fascinating to hear a bit of their long-term perspective on how the field has evolved, how the field has changed, if there is even a viable business in making high-end crafted data visualization or if we will <laughs> all be unemployed soon. Uh, so I'm super curious to uh, learn more about all this. So as I said, we have two guests. The first one is Thomas Clever. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Moritz. Hi, Enrico. Thanks for joining us. And we have Benjamin Wiederkehr. Hi, Benjamin. Hey, Ben. Hi, Moritz. Hi, Enrico. Great to have you on. So, Thomas, maybe first, could you briefly introduce yourself and your company? And uh, then Benjamin can take over. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you said, I'm, I'm Thomas Clever, or Clever, uh, co-founder of Clever Franke, or Clever Frankie, as uh, most people <laughs> call us these days. Um, we're a data design and technology company, um, and we create anything from, uh, you know, one-off data visualizations to data-driven products and tools, as we like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, we have our headquarters here in the Netherlands. And uh, we have another office in Chicago and, and Dubai. Yeah. How many people are working for you right now? Uh, it's around 32, I think, if wow. I'm correct. 32 yeah. now. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. yeah. Great. Benjamin, how about you? All right. I'm an uh, interaction designer um, with sort of like a focus on information visualization and interface design um, from the beginning. And then back in 2008, I started writing a blog on data visualization where I sort of like publish my work and my research. Um, That's also how we met uh, Moritz. And I think also that's how I stumbled over Enrico's work. Oh, yes. Uh, and then sort of like a year later, I co-founded Interactive Things, um, which fairly similar to uh, Clever Frankie is a, a design and development studio with a focus on um, data-driven uh, products. Um, we are a team of 17 people. Um, we're sort of like a slightly weird beast as we are uh, five equal partners uh, in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think today sort of like my main focus is uh, leading the company as the managing director. Um, I have a few uh, teaching assignments at universities on data visualization and I'm sort of like co-organizing the DataVis Zurich meetup uh, here in Zurich. Right. So Benjamin, is there maybe just so people get a sense of, okay, what types of projects do you like to do or what, what's your approach? Um, is there maybe one quintessential project where you could say, okay, this, this is really uh, quintessential, almost uh, interactive things project where you could say, yeah, that's, that's sort of really good example of the type of work we do and we like to do. Yeah, that's, you know, like picking your favorite child, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I think um, the the project that sort of like comes to mind is is actually two one uh, two projects, and uh, that's uh, education inequalities and education progress. So these are two websites that we have um, built for UNESCO, and they are sister products in a way, even though they're seven years apart. So education inequalities is already seven years old now, and education progress was just released. Um, The first was an exploratory tool uh, analyzing disparities in quality of education. Uh, And the second is then an explanatory publication summarizing the key facts and trends. Um, And so in a way they uh, present two coins of the data visualization, two sides of the data visualization coin, um, sort of like uh, exploration for discovery and explanation for understanding and Besides being interesting from a data visualization perspective, I think the projects also um, rank very high uh, in in sort of like our in our view because of the purpose. Uh, they both advance uh, the sustainable development goal uh, four um, forward, which uh, I think is an important uh, aspect. Uh, so inclusive and equitable uh, quality of education for all. The second is the client, UNESCO, uh, has been a long-term and very, very committed client to the success of each of their project. Um, And then uh, in terms of craft, uh, we're both challenged in design and development when we work on these uh, projects. And and typically with UNESCO, we are allowed to pursue a very iterative process um, instead of sort of like, you know, fixed scope, um, waterfall type of um, 
process. And I think sort of like these three aspects uh, or four aspects, uh, purpose, client, craft, and process are important to us. And I think they are well reflected in those two uh, projects. Great. Thomas, how about you? Is there a similar example? Yeah, like Ben thing? said, that's always very hard. <laughs> and I think uh, if you look back over, over, over the years that we've been running the business, there's always some you know, quintessential projects, some lighthouse projects that I think really define you as a company uh, to take a next step in, in where you are. Um, you know, if, if I have to choose, then I think the, the, the mobility index website that we created for the uh, Chicago Metropolitan Agency of Planning is, is, is one of my personal favorites, um, really because it brings together a lot of, lot of things dear to my heart and dear to our company's heart in the sense that it's a, it's a mix of experimental uh, data viz with uh, an important message behind it. Um, the, the, the CMAP approached us because they had written a new mobility plan or a new urban planning plan, so to speak, for the city of Chicago, which was pretty much the first comprehensive urban planning plan uh, since Daniel Bur Burnham, which was about 100 years ago. Um, and it really outlined around economy, mobility, and livability, where the city should be heading, um, and also the, the challenges that they face. So mobility is a very important uh, topic to the city of Chicago. I think 25% of the workforce is somehow tied to freight, transportation, uh, all those type of things. And, you know, the, the investment that needs to be done in the infrastructure there is about $13 trillion. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to really convey that message, they asked us, can you con concise the, or can you digest this plan of 660 pages into one interactive website? Um, and of course we said yes. Um, remembering that on the way there on the plane, I was reading through that plan and thinking, I'm not sure how we're going to do it. Um, but it was really, uh, it was, it's, it's a, it's a really nice project in, in how we um, did a lot of editorial stuff on, on, you know, understanding the plan and thinking, how can we, explain this plan to, you know, anybody down in the street, but also to business policy makers, journalists, politicians. Um, and, and there's a whole editorial sort of structure that there, you know, there's a bird's eye view over Chicago. And then as you dive into the topics, you literally dive down into street level. Um, there's different types of visualizations from charts to, you know, we were using new technologies at the time. This was 2014. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, boxes that are ticked in that project. And I think, you know, looking back, I just realized when I heard Ben talk that that was, the first time that we set foot in Chicago, and and mm -hmm. here we are Could six seven put years you later, on the and international uh, map, in a way, right? <laughs> here we yeah. have the office yeah. in Chicago. So really, right. it, it's also the <laughs> the moment in time I fell in love with that city. Mm -hmm. Nice. One thing I was wondering if is if you can briefly describe how is uh, an agency like yours different from other ways of organizing business around data visualization? So I'm thinking about in-house data visualizers or freelancers or even more classic web agency. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I have to admit that you know I founded this the, my this this company together with my business partner uh, Gert uh, when we were still in university. So um, of course we did some internships, uh, but never never worked at a company. We've always been uh, been our own <laughs> boss. So so I have to admit that that is uh, that is a side note I should make. Um, but if I if I if I look at you know. Um, other design agencies, other web agencies, those type of companies, and of course, people that have joined us over the years. I, I think there are, you know, we might be 90, 95% the same. I think mm. in terms of, you know, the complexity of the work um, is where where I think it is a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. And, and mm. I'm not saying one is better than the other, don't get me wrong, but I think when you look at the type of clients and the type of challenges that they, they throw at us, it's very much at the intersection of data strategy and business. Yeah. Um, yeah. And business can also be an organization like, you know, a, a UNESCO, like Ben mentioned, but mm. um, um, there are goals there. And these are all sort of, tr we're trying to marry those and, and really understand what is this this business, what is their, the core of their challenge? And once we get to that core, either through data or, or with data, that's when you build up the product and start thinking about, you know, the users, uh, the, 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 the stakeholders and all those type of things. So there's a, there's a delicate balance in, in the projects that we work on, um, from from a business perspective then of course there's the data which is um you know we use data the way that an other design agency might use photography or 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 music or, mm, or yeah. film or yeah. cinematography but data has of course some inherent uh, uh challenges with it as well data quality privacy uh sure. you know that we can go on there's there's multiple podcasts in that um <laughs> but i think you know yeah. really that complexity is what mm. what you really have to uh digest and understand and both from a technical and a design perspective um, and do you and often feel you have to rewind in terms of a client says i need a 3d animated map and you go back to okay let's okay great <laughs> let's yeah. pause for a second there let's keep that in mind uh but like what are you trying to achieve or like what's your what's your product actually looking like or, or who are you really talking yeah to that's here? that's absolutely and I, I think um thankfully i've only had the question of a 3d bar chart once in my life <laughs> and I, I did design it just to prove them wrong uh <laughs> um but other than that uh, yeah, there's a lot of focus uh, in, 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 in our work on, on just understanding the challenge, the landscape that this has to uh, work in, has to operate in. And, mm. and also, I think, you know, um, looking at the design and technology people that work in our company, I think we attract um, different type of designers and technologists than, let's say, you would at an, at an ad agency. I mean, you're not going to see our work out in the open in like this uh, train station per se on, on big billboards, right? It's it's very mm. often a different type of uh, project. Mm. So um, yeah, curious to see how, how Ben would, would th think about this. <laughs> no, I mean, I share, on the one hand side, I share the same caveat. I've never worked in another design uh, agencies and, and therefore sort of like don't really have the inside scoop there. Um, and I agree with the things that you've mentioned of um, the complexity of working in sort of like on data intensive products um, and also the nonlinearity 
of sort of like the development process, um, there simply isn't really a chance of, uh, you know, conceptual work, design work, development work, what you would typically or what you would have traditionally found in um, uh, application development or, or sort of like website development. So the, the notion of a cross-functional team having to continually uh, and iteratively working together, I think that just is an inherent part of how such a data design agency works. Um, there is, or I mean, that's also something that we had to learn. There is simply no other way. Um, and similarly to the point that sort of like Moritz mentioned, educating the client on, on how this work happens, um, the idea of sort of like dropping a CSV file on our doorstep and expecting an award-winning <laughs> experience sort of like six weeks after to be picked up is is something that like, like might still exist in fantasies, but it's, it's, it's just not part of the reality. And so mm -hmm. uh, also understanding that this sort of like intensive work and nonlinear work involves like many different stakeholders. And that's sort of like the data provider, that's the product owner. Uh, these are the end users, these are the domain experts. And so it is definitely working as a client with an agency is definitely more hands-on than they might typically expect from working with um, a web design agency or a branding agency or a marketing agency. And I don't want to, again, sort of like, I don't have the inside scoop into these, how these agencies function. Maybe they're exactly the same level of sort of like hands-on, knees mm -hmm. deep in um, the client's materials. And for them, it's just videos or um, textual content or, or imagery. Um, and for us, it's just their sort of like raw data. And, mm -hmm. uh, and and that might be the case, right? But that I think is something that is might be a, a sort of like a misunderstanding of like, you know, input data and output visually, <laughs> like output sort of like data-driven experience. And that's yeah. just not sort of like a hands-off <laughs> situation. Yeah, and this whole idea of data as a third stakeholder that, that Martin Wattenberg, I think, and Fernanda Vegas brought into the game is, I think, such a nice one that you say, okay, they're, they're clients and they're designers, but there's also data as an invisible third stakeholder at the table. And data has rights too and interests and, you know, preferences maybe or affordances. And, and I think at this, there was also this paper, Data Changes Everything, Enrico, or yes. was it published yeah. last year at WIS that also may, argued that data design is fundamentally different from other forms of design. Yeah. Um, um, to me, the material is not as malleable as it is for yeah. like working with video, working mm -hmm. with images, because like you, you might be angle, uh, like able to sort of like change the angle, reshoot the scene, um, mm -hmm. rewrite the text. There is no sort of like, or I mean, <laughs> I hope there is no massaging the data to fit your concept. Yeah. No, um, we wouldn't do but that. But there is for other types <laughs> of media. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences yeah. where we do have to follow the constraints that sort of like come with whatever the data is. And oftentimes you don't know what the data is. Oftentimes the you know, you work with a dynamic data source and you can't even expect to understand what the data will look like mm. at all times over the life cycle of a product, right? You might have a demo data set to start with. You might have sort of like a snapshot of now, but oftentimes the product gets connected to um, data that will be refreshed and then things will look different. And sort of like you have to design for uh, eventualities that are not under control in maybe during the creation process. Right, right. Yeah. 
I have a practical question. So to me, it seems, and this might be a total misperception, but uh, or maybe a systemic bias we have in the field, but it seems like a lot of the successful data visualization work that gets a lot of visibility, like at awards or in, you know, in... Uh, uh, um, Uh, on Twitter or something is often done by by individuals or small teams, and I was wondering what's your experience with scaling data visualization productions? Like, can you scale it? To like, is it easy to separate the work so you can work with five people on one data visualization product, or even with ten? Or is there like a natural limit where this tight collaboration between data and design and and technology and consulting breaks down? Did you find maybe a formula that makes it easier to to divide the work and have really clearly defined interfaces, or do you have? Uh, a lot of small teams that all do little projects. Like, how, how did you deal with this whole practical issue of scaling up data visualization design and, and production? That's a good question. I don't think we've we, we ever thought about scaling up data visualization uh -huh. design in that yeah. sense. So that's that's an interesting. But you have like thing. 32 people like working. So do they all work on individual projects, or how many people would usually work on a project? That's a good question. I think, you know, we have multiple projects running at the same time in the studio. Um, right. Those are a combination of larger and smaller projects. Um, and, but I think, you know, looking at, at an ideal team setup for us, um, I think, you know, you're looking at around six to eight people on a, on a larger project. That's when, you know, going, above those numbers people start to get in each other's way um and <laughs> and at that's at the same time that's sort of the the number that our team really collaborates with each other so it really is an important collaboration uh, of course there are smaller projects that that maybe one or two people might work on but if you look at sort of the, the scaling and the larger projects um That's for us an ideal size. And, and often I think a lot of our clients are surprised. They, they would even say that our team is small uh, mm -hmm. on a project um, because very often uh, big IT firms are working with 20, 30, 40 people on, on something. And here we come in with, with eight and they sort of look at you and think, um, <laughs> are you sure you can manage? But really it's about uh, efficiency and, and just having a team that, trusts each other and knows exactly where each other's uh, skill set lies um mm -hmm. so uh, yeah i think that is that is the optimum size um and that's i guess two three four type projects that you have at the same time right, in right. the studio um typically our developers yeah. like to work on projects for a longer period of time uh in one stretch whereas designers by nature get bored quicker mm -hmm. so they want to yeah. have maybe so you're playing two playing a lot of tetris with big pieces and small pieces and try to fit yeah. everything together yeah <laughs> benjamin how about you i know you you have put a lot of thought into your process and your, your culture at interactive things so fundamentally i think again it's very similar to what uh, thomas just said um there are multiple projects that are like running in parallel at the studio at all times um of different sizes um And and I think like that's healthy and and for us definitely the the natural state uh, of work. Now, the individual project teams for us are typically slightly smaller. Um, so I think we consider more of sort of like four 
to a maximum of six people uh, mm -hmm. to work mm -hmm. well for us. Um, maybe also to work well for the type of products that we're producing. I think, of course, like depending on for who you work, um, what the product needs to look like and how quickly it has to be delivered. Like those are all factors that define the project team. But um, in general, we sort of like form these project teams that are then dedicated to sort of like working on an individual uh, product. Uh, they are typically cross-functional. So it's, uh, you know, designers with a variety of skills. It's developers with a variety of skills um, working together. Um, we try our best to keep those cross-functional teams all together from start through execution to the end. Uh, there's always work to do for everyone, um, which is sort of like a slight shift from how we thought work would happen at the beginning. So over over time, like that is definitely one of the learnings and, and something that we um, try to make our, our principal way of working in, in, um, in this type of project. Um, so, and, and as a result, scaling up, I could see scaling up working like self-organized teams. So if you, I don't think that it makes sense to scale up, at least for the type of projects that we do, to scale up the teams to like, you know, double or triple the size that I just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that an agency um, of Clever Frankie's size, for example, like, like doesn't work in, in my perspective, like that might... I mean, you mentioned it, you're sort of like a little bit beyond 30 people. So I could see that scaling and then you have a higher throughput of projects, uh, but sort of like the individual project team size per project is roughly the same. And mm -hmm. I think if you look towards um, the principle of sort of like self-organized teams and self-organized organizations, uh, like Teal and all of these buzzwords, then I think that's also reflected in, in their thinking. Like, don't try to um, instantiate too big of a uh, division of labor. Like, don't mm -hmm. build up silos and then don't try to centralize functions or don't have too many centralized functions. Uh, instead, embed those into the individual teams. And then an organization should be fairly flexible in scaling or contracting. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's just theory. I don't really have a <laughs> have practical experience with that. Yeah. I'm not sure that I'm interested yeah. in, in, in earning that. But uh, the area of self-organization in teams is definitely something that I think is interesting. And on this very small scale here at Interactive Things, that's something that we try to pursue. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right, Ben. I think the scaling is is definitely in terms of more project teams next to each other rather than ramping up the size of an individual same, project yeah. team. I, I, I see absolutely no benefit in, in, in creating a project team of 15 people. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, this, the, the self-steering teams and, and all those type of, uh, uh, uh things are, are definitely, uh, something that, that really work well, uh, in this situation. Maybe one note that I, um, because, more it sort of like opened the question with, uh, you know, successful work is done by individuals or sort of like very small teams. And I think uh, there's one thing that I'm observing, which is a slight glorification of the unicorn visualizer mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. our field. Right. Um, so people who excel at all involved uh, disciplines and sort of like can take a raw data set and turn it into a keystone experience. Um, 
present company, uh, looking over to you, Moritz, uh, <laughs> is a slight point in case. Um, and I think this is great, but I think um, this does also have parallels to the web design industry where sort of like the unicorn designer is somebody who does mm. everything well from user research through pixel perfect design to like, <laughs> you know, front end mm. development across platforms. And I think this could s sort of like raise slightly unrealistic um, expectations for employers who are yeah. looking for this type of people or yeah. uh, <laughs> overwhelming feelings of inadequacy for newcomers. Um, <laughs> I think there is, there is a, really a, point. There is a yeah, yeah. big agree. role to play for someone who's just extremely good at front-end engineering or who's mm. extremely good at information visualization, but doesn't have the other skills. And I, I just hope that we don't get disillusioned if I'm so like fairly narrow in my skill set, I will never have a chance in database because um, all the award-winning projects are done by these, again, by these unicorns who like can do it all. And I think that's something that we just, in order to keep it inclusive for people who like just don't have the bandwidth, don't have the time yeah. um, to sort of like learn all of these things that there's still place um, yeah. To, to do work yeah. in that and, in, in and our field. Also, I think this type of unicorn approach, as you call it, also works just for a certain type of project. So if you really want to build lasting tools that are used over a long period of time and that are like really integrated with people's work, you have to be a good team player. You know, there's no way you can just do this in this hit and run fashion and just, you know, take that CSV to make it beautiful and uh, off you go. You know, that's that's not really sustainable in in, a, in an applied setting, right? I and think you see it even more, uh, not, not just in in our field of work, work yeah. so to speak, but even in looking at job vacancies from technology companies or just businesses looking for design design talent. You sometimes mm -hmm. see this list of you know must be skilled in everything called Adobe, yeah. but then also have front-end coding skills. And, you know, even myself, <laughs> I think, well, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I can't do that. What, what, is, what is happening here? So uh, I, I think it's a very uh, valuable point that Ben makes here about, about, you know, the talent and people looking to go into Dataviz is, you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you shouldn't feel ashamed that you're not that unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> there is a space for there is a place for everyone. There's space for donkeys and horses and everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I'm curious about something here. So when you assemble a new team, I guess it's always a mix of designers and and developers, right? So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how do you carefully assemble a new team and maybe even how, how you hire new people, I guess designers and, and, and coders don't necessarily always go very well together. So I'm wondering if you have any, any insights on that. I think that, I mean, I get, I get the point, uh, and sort of like the, the trope, uh, of designers and coders <laughs> don't going well together, but like, I would, I would just love to just completely dismiss this notion, oh, yeah, <laughs> um, Perfect. because they do like, they it, do. it's, yeah. these are people who are like making, building, creating things, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're building products and yes, for some, the tools is JavaScript. For some, the tools is Go. For some, the tools is Python. For others, the tools is Sketch. And for yet others, the tool is Tableau. So yes, the tools change and 
I mean, it might it, it could be said that sort of like a designer's mindset is slightly different from sort of like a, a programmer's mindset. But at the end of the day, sort of like we're confronted with a series of challenges. Um, there are methods that we apply to overcome these challenges and sort of like find the solutions to problems. And at the end of the day, we we sort of like see a progression in. At the beginning, there was nothing, and at the end, there's gonna be a product, and sort of like you you just continually evolve this this thing until it's um, done or good enough or award winning. Um, and if you assemble a team that I think believes in each other's responsibilities and also believes in each other's strengths, then it doesn't necessarily matter if they're if they consider themselves to be a designer or or an engineer or or a hybrid somewhere in between. Um, and to me, that is always one of the most important aspects uh, in our hiring. Um, like one of the big areas that we that we want to explore with with uh, a potential hire is like what their perspective on collaboration communication and community is um to learn how they how they see themselves and i think um yeah maybe then you i'm in the privileged position to make a pick and therefore have people on our team that uh, where I don't even have this conflict of, aha, mm -hmm. that person doesn't really go well with like a very creative, very um, experimental designer. So, of course, there's a curation. So I have this slight <laughs> distorted view. If I just took a general population of designers and developers, then yes, the, the curation <laughs> would have to happen on a per project basis. But in the lucky situation of having a steady team, I don't have to make this curation and we we sort of like establish a common understanding and a common respect between all the people as a fundament and then per project it's not really a question of curating mm -hmm. the team mm. sure yeah i think i think that ties in well with how we look at uh hiring people and um of course there are um discussions within the studio between designers programmers developers but also among designers themselves and developers th themselves uh, i mean in the end our team is is passionate and and a lot of in passionate individuals so you know there's also discussions going on uh, between interaction designers and visual designers about the the, <laughs> the styling of a button whether it's ugly or not uh, and, it, and and it is uh, fundamental discussions like that that uh, go on um and at the same time like ben said i think a lot of people that work in 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 art our types of companies and you know in data viz are often this hybrid or multi-skilled individuals that have this interest in in technology and design so very often i i joke that we have the design nerds and the nerd designers uh in our company <laughs> um and 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 really we 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 hire on on culture on cultural fit uh more than talent and skill set because i'm i'm a firm believer on you know educating people on on certain things of course you need to have some fundamental form of talent for either design or code um but but a lot of things you can learn on the job and 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 we train people in that but what, things that you can't learn are just um having trust in your colleagues um, working together. And, and really one of the fundamental questions I ask in any job interview to myself is, could I sit next to this person in an airplane for four hours? And, you know, four hours is, is just long enough 
to start getting sweaty and annoyed and uncomfortable? And, you know, are you happy with the person sitting next to you at that <laughs> moment in time? Are you going to have a good conversation? And mm -hmm. it is a, it's a very good test for yourself to think about, you know, does this person fit into our company? And that doesn't mean that people have to be the same. On, on the contrary, I want to have as many different people uh, in our company working together. Um, but there needs to be this fundamental respect and trust for each other and for each other's capabilities, whether you're junior or senior, you know, all these things. Um, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a, a junior designer can tell me Thomas, I don't like the typeface that you're using. That's that's absolutely fine. Um, that's the type of people you want around, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so really, it's much more about culture than I, I feel uh, about about uh, other things. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's an ongoing uh, struggle and challenge, but also exciting to build these teams and figure out what works, what doesn't. And uh, then you think you have figured it out, and two weeks later... <laughs> Things look totally different. <laughs> it's an eternal struggle, Moritz. Exactly. Uh, yeah. so I can imagine it's exciting. Yeah. I want to use the opportunity now that I have you two uh, here in the call also to talk a bit about the long-term view of how the whole data viz field has changed. Like you've been following, you know, your own. Now, you know, we've been following your careers, but you've also followed the development of the field and, and how things have changed. So my question here was, like, do you see any any... Can you say there have been shifts in how over the last 10 years, maybe client requirements have changed, what types of projects were feasible or interesting to do, or um, is it all pretty much still the same, but we have just fancier technologies, you know, or do you feel like that the whole field is, is sort of yeah evolving in, in certain directions? I would be super curious here uh, to hear th your thoughts. Yeah, I think the, the field is definitely evolving when, when we started our company. Uh, you know, you saw even in data sets that were thrown at you, it was very much about web analytics and those type of uh, data sets. And then it went into financial data. And then, mm -hmm. you know, as you, um, then the, the iPhone was introduced, which was a huge, you know, improvement uh, on one hand uh, regarding data fizz going from <laughs> B2B to B2C space. Yeah. Um, and I think in from our perspective, And I think where we see our value add in the years to come is really around data, physical, digital space, um, IoT, sensor mm. technology, and, and how visualization plays a role in, in interfaces, um, adaptive interfaces moreover, because I think, you know, we're now... Real-time data as well, probably, like this constant yeah, handling of data absolutely. streams. Absolutely. Um, I think you know the 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 we're we're heading towards a a world where you design and develop something um that that you don't know how that is going to be used across all these different platforms and touch points and uh and, and areas and fields so um you're really designing a much more a a, a system uh and it requires a systemic approach to design and to data viz Uh, more than anything. So that's where I see the long-term view for us is, is really those adaptive interfaces uh, and, and systems that are, are much larger than just a, a, a single visualization. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I think maybe even going as far as 
questioning whether we should visualize data in future whether you know we should actually be helping people in such a way that they don't need to look at data which is i think an interesting uh philosophical uh question that we, that we have discussions about quite often in our studios you know how can you how would you design a data visualization for um voice control right uh, without yeah. any screen those type of things mm. um there's a huge sort of green field for us to explore mm -hmm. Benjamin, how about you? Yeah, again, I'm uh, definitely following uh, Thomas's sort of like train of thought here. Um, we have seen over the past like 10 years, to, like where we have been working actively in the field, um, huge shifts, first and foremost, in like understanding what the value is of the of the work that we're doing uh, right. so even understanding like the value of of using data in in in, in more aspects than mm -hmm. sort of like you know analytics sort of like data prone fields that have been working with data for decades before um and instead i think that's reflective when thomas says we have seen new data sets, like maybe things were uh, analytics sets before and then financial sets, because these are traditional um, industries that have been working with data for a long time. But now we see um, consumers working with data much more. We see journalists working with data much more. We see educators working with data. Um, people who have to report uh, on their data, switching from sort of like interpretations in, in written form to more exploratory experience. So I think all this um, new data that we get to work with is a result of more diverse people working actively with data um, mm. and don't necessarily do all the interpretation and uh, transmission into the spoken word again, but instead allow their stakeholders to sort of like actively uh, still explore uh, and experiment with the data. And I think that's yeah. that has been a huge change. And suddenly it's all about digital transformation in general, rather than making in a, a way, pie or a bubble chart, right? Yeah. Right. We, we, we started... Um, I mean, we started right sort of like after the the financial crisis and and uh, before and sort of like, you know, slightly after the coin of sort of like data is the new oil, uh, mm -hmm. the term data is the new oil was coined. And so at the beginning, we definitely had to explain much more the type of work that we do. And, and again, the benefits of working with data uh, these days, this is is like everybody's understanding uh, mm -hmm. in in almost all industries. And so it's much less of this explanation of sort of like what type of work this is and why this is important and what can be the benefits. It's we, we start much later sort of like in this education process whenever mm. we talk to clients. And mm -hmm. I think that will definitely continue to shift. I think we have, again, like there's a mass market for data visualizations now. Um, but I think that also poses the next challenges uh, because I think we also have reached a certain level of the audience um, that definitely now have a much higher data literacy or data visualization literacy, but there's still much more ground to be covered. And maybe, as Thomas says, maybe visualization is not necessarily the right medium anymore. So mm -hmm. if we look yeah. at trends like, um, I want answers instead of I want to analyze. Um, I want to have something personalized instead of I want to have something generic. I want to have something that's quick, snackable, and consumable instead of sort of like this mm. long form. So mm. these shifts in consumer behavior and how we consume information in general, I think um, it, 
point in the direction of where work sort of like of where I think human data interaction will go and the visual media like is extremely powerful uh, it is also ex- like exclusive so it also excludes people with certain disabilities to even start interacting with data and so mm-hmm. i think not as a you know not as a fallback but instead of taking the human data as the actual norm and then thinking is visualization the right medium or is um yet another type of medium more adequate going forward i think is something that's very very interesting so um i think ben the, yeah, you yeah, touch the, upon a really important point which is data literacy and and maybe that is an imp- something that that our field is 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 should should consider is the on the one hand, we have the data literate people, and on the other hand, we have the data illiterate people. Um, and I think, you know, looking at maybe a broader trend, um, and and you replace words like digital uh, data with digital, it becomes um, where the new rich and poor people uh, split divide comes. Right? Are you hmm. digitally literate or illiterate? Are you able to? Uh, manifest yourself in a digitized society uh, that is throwing all these data and, and, and insights at you or not. And I think companies like ours uh, also have, on the one hand, uh, progressing the data literate people to, to a new level, but at the same time, taking those data illiterate people or, or the, the, the ones that don't have the tools and means to, to access that and, and help them advance to that to that same level to that equal playing field and i think um you know there's there's often in 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 the tech world and the world that we operate in we talk about you know everything is being digitized but let's not forget that at least 50% of this this globe is still people are fighting for shelter for safety and and some some kind of running water um they don't really care about data visualization at this mm-hmm. point in time mm-hmm. and still mm-hmm. we can de- design and develop the tools for them um to come up to that level very quickly i hope yeah and that's a great like general observation that this designing more for a fit for a certain audience or to think of all the different types of audiences and also the different types of formats and channels. I think there the awareness in the last few years has has really uh, risen. And I think maybe five to ten years back, we would have thought more in a one one size fits all approach, or like let's just make a cool project and everybody will see it, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, um, I think it's it's a natural progression, right? As you said, ten years ago, like okay, we can make a visualization. We might use Flash. Mm. Like people might need a plugin, but we <laughs> yeah. can't create a visualization. Nope. Then, okay, we can create a visualization that that's web native. Yeah. Then, okay, we can create a visualization that can also be seen on a smarter device. Then we create visualizations that sort of like go across devices. Um, and and I think going forward, it's like maybe the visualization is not the necessary sort of like yeah. or the most important part anymore uh, mm-hmm. but the interaction with the data like learning about the data understanding the data analyzing it taking yeah. insights from it making it actionable and so forth like that's the important part and i think that's sort of like where a lot of as thomas says a lot of green field still is and i think that's where um we should be pushing forward into yeah 
And this job never stops, regardless of technology shifts or, you know, whatever. I think <laughs> we can and still you know, do it, that in 30 yeah. years. <laughs> in the end, I'm thinking that the, the, the basic skills and principles behind communicating data don't really go away once you change mm. a medium or channel, right? So I would yeah. be really curious to see what happens when we more more people start going away in a way from from visualization and using other channels that's super interesting yeah, yeah great stuff <laughs> so we need to wrap up soon we need to wrap up soon but we have one more like special special idea so we want to end <laughs> these episodes with having uh benjamin ask something a question to thomas and thomas ask a question to benjamin All right. So I think I tie directly into the last few statements that Thomas <laughs> made. Um, Thomas, Sensor Lab, what is it all about and why? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, Sensor Lab is, is a, a nonprofit that we started when we moved into our new office space here about two and a half, three years ago. Um, and You know, we we have this this prototyping lab within uh, within Kleverfranke where we you know it has anything from drills to uh, you know soldering machines to you know all the nerd stuff that you always want as a kid. Um, um, so so finally we had the space and we felt let's let's build this prototyping lab where we can just go wild on anything. But like most things in life, that stands idle for 90, 95% of the time. <laughs> so uh, that's a shame, you know, mm. uh, like, like owning a car. Uh, you don't use it very often if you think about it. Um, so that's why we said, hey, why don't we um, consolidate that into what we call Sensor Lab and open it up for students and, and people that want to come use our equipment Um And, and use our tools and, 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 you know, hopefully, uh, this, the, the odd intern or the odd employee walks out at, at the same time, uh, or walks in, I should say, mm. and then walks out as an employee. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's really what, what Sensor Lab is about. It's, it's, it's nothing, it's not a different company or anything, but it's something that we, we promote separately. Um, and it's a little bit bigger than just the prototyping lab. We also have an event space in our office that uh, we, we host, uh, um, you know, presentations and those type of things. So we have university students coming in and learning about data visualization. We have created this workshop that is a very small introductory Uh, workshop three to four hours for students to learn how to connect a muscle sensor to an interface and get <laughs> the data in a JSON file and how to structure it and then create their own visualizations out of it. So really it's, um, it's, it's just, it's fun and games, so to speak, mm -hmm. but, uh, but in a structured way um, that makes business sense in some way, shape or form. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Sounds Excellent. like fun. Yeah, so I mean, this this like Ben said, his question ties into the the last part. My, mine ties into maybe the things that we talked about earlier, um, and you know, not having the experience of working in another agency like you, um, there are always things that you want to learn from each other and see how you deal with with challenges. Um, so you you mentioned that you know you work with these uh, uh, these multi skilled teams, uh, four to six people. And um, 
you you run into this you know dur during a data vis uh, process you switch from analysis to design to development to narrator back to analysis uh, to find the best angle and and way forward to bring this this message across how do you switch uh, perspectives uh, at the right time within your team mm -hmm. and i ask that because that's a constant challenge <laughs> on our end always yeah it's a fantastic question um and i think that applies to both interdisciplinary teams but that also applies to an individual um who would just sort of like execute a project from start to finish on their own um because you do have to like put on different hats or sort of like put on different glasses to have a different perspective and focus on what's what's relevant at that time um so i mean one one sort of like tool that helped us um set this mindset uh, depending on the project phase um, is something that we sort of like started a few years ago we have in our office uh, for each project we have project boards um, very similar to how other companies work with uh, kanban boards or a similar uh, mm. system and on our project boards um, we have sort of like uh, a few different templates for different stages that the project is in and mm. uh, besides having things like a timeline and a list of you know requirements or a list of assumptions uh, and then sort of like a kanban board for our tools we also have um, a big sheet where we have our mindset written on it so uh, in, in in sort of like written out english we write what is our current mindset that we operate under in mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. phase of the project. And that That's sort of great. like evolves yeah. over time. And so yeah. in a way it's it, it acts as a token, it acts as a reminder. It takes the, uh, yeah, it, it again, sort of like it's something that you can point to. It's something that you, because you have it in uh, daily stand-up meetings or in, in also in larger discussions that you can sort of like point to and say, hey, let's not forget where you know we try to explore different options so it's mm -hmm. not necessarily the point in time to sort of like cut out everything that's bad and only pursue sort of like one direction or conversely hey now is not the time for more exploration now is sort of like refinement and polishing <laughs> and so these things written out um in physical space if you work in a physical space or written out uh, on a in a digital space uh, for a team is a very helpful token for uh, not forgetting it as the project leader uh, yourself, but also um, uh, having everybody sort of like be able to point to it and then actually actively using it in discussions and in their work. So that's something that helped us. Great. Thank you. That's, that's, that's awesome. super inspiring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these are physical, like big cardboards, and you can pin stuff on them, and everybody could see where a project's at at, at a given uh, point in time. Yeah. So there is a. It's that. sort of like a, a predefined format of a cardboard wall. Yeah. It really is fairly big, but still like small Movement. enough to handle yeah. yourself. Um, Peter uh, Gossner, one of the partners at Interactive, he wrote a lengthy blog post about the, the thinking behind it. It's also like it has been sort of like a few years in the making until we're where we are. Uh, yeah. And it's an evolving thing. So like these things change. And right now we're sort of like trying to move away um, also in the current situation, trying to move away from the physical necessity to like have the board in the room, to have an equivalent um, in the digital space that is a little bit more portable and sort of like allows for a little bit more remote uh, access. Um, so I can, I can 
I'm happy to send that link where it's sort of like we explain totally. how they really look and work. Yeah, we want that blog policy. We want to see a photo of all these boards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're sure. experimenting with something um, in the digital space. Like you said, having those yeah. project boards or, or even doing sprint retos online because everyone is working remote now. Exactly. And we found yeah. that Miro is a very nice uh, tool mm, yeah. to, to use. Um, and also to have workshops with clients at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anything that allows like this effortless awareness of where everybody's at and what the reading the room has so much become so much harder, right? When yeah. everybody is remote. And so <laughs> this is an interesting time to figure out things to to create this uh this type of awareness <laughs> over a distance. <laughs> yeah. But I, I totally agree. The, all these physical things that you can point to and like discuss together can be so valuable in building up that mutual and this common ground between people and say like, yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing here and this is where we are. And it's, uh, it sounds trivial, but it's very important. Yeah. Wonderful. That was great chatting to you. We should wrap it up. Otherwise we're losing too many people who don't have so much time to listen. <laughs> but if you have any additional questions, you can ping Thomas and, and Benjamin on Twitter for sure or some other social platform or um, uh, send us an email and uh, we'll respond maybe. And uh, Yeah. We'll link to your stuff, take a look at the show notes and super looking forward to seeing what you'll come up with in the future in terms of projects. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Has been an absolute privilege and joy. Absolutely. I concur. Always a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.